We're in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, verses 26 to 31. Hear then the word of God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Pray with me. Our Father, we have gathered to You this morning and we sit at Your feet to hear from Your Word, however strong it may be. We pray that You would write the truth of it on our souls and help us to understand it that it may shape our thinking in our hearts and so shape our living and our speaking and our sharing of the gospel that the truth of your wrath, uh, Father, would capture our imagination in a way that would drive us to Jesus and cause us to speak the name of Jesus to others who need to know him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, there's a passage for you. When you preach through books, sometimes you, you know, as our habit is, expository preaching, we preach through a book, and so you preach it all, right? It's it's the discipline of hearing the whole counsel of God, right? To hear all of it, even the stuff that's harder to do. If you preach more topically, you'll never preach this text. (laughs) Is it wrong that as I was reading it and preaching it, uh, preparing it, I thought to myself, Joel Osteen will never preach this text, <laughs> right? They're, they're just, it's not, it's just not where he would go, ever, which is the problem with a great portion of the church these days. It wants to be so positive and accepted by the culture to grow big churches and have popular ministries that we neglect the whole counsel of God. The truth that we need to understand. We remember back in chapter 5, part of his uh, rebuke to the church that he's writing to, this community of Jewish believers, that, he, that he, he rebuked them, he encouraged them that they needed to move on beyond milk to solid food and that they haven't done it. Uh, that they still needed milk. And he said, this is a problem. And I think that part of, one of the reason he was saying that is he intended to give them some solid food. He intended to give them some meat, you know, that, and I think that this passage is indeed solid food. It is a passage that has caused a great deal of discussion and concern through the centuries, right? There's a certain part of it, even as I read it, I don't, I don't know if, how you respond, when I, when I first read it and I'm like, I got to preach this, you know, my, you know, my heart quailed a little bit. You know, there was a, there was opening two verses, if we go on sinning, Deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we go on sinning deliberately, willingly is the idea there. The NIV translated, if we keep on sinning. How many of you are in that category? Don't show me. <laughs> Not enough of you raised your hands very quickly. I don't know if you were thinking about it or you just didn't want to see your neighbor to see. But not a lot of hands went up immediately. But the concern is, as we read this text, at least for you and I, as we read it, there are no Christians, so I should have seen a lot of hands, there are no Christians who don't keep on sinning after they come to Christ, come to faith. There, there aren't any. And so we read this text, and so there's a certain amount that there should be a little bit of concern, and there was a lot of discussion about the text and what it means and its application in the life of the church. And Sometimes it's been very wrongly applied and, and have uh, created much harm by it. But even after we're saved, we do continue to sin. You know, that, that sanctification is a process. And unless you're perfected immediately, right now, then there's going to be sin. And you're going to wrestle with it. There was a heresy in, uh, in church history that is still, it's still out there. I mean, at least 20 years ago, I bumped into a guy. Uh, it's called perfectionism. And perfectionism is that idea, that it's that belief that you can be perfect now. And that you, you would never sin again, right? That you get saved and then you're filled with the Spirit and you never sin again and that's it. I met a young man when I was uh, in college ministry and he told me it had been five years since he had sinned. You know, it was one of those things that put you back on your heels again to say, what's wrong with me then? I don't know. Who, who are you? You know, that's amazing. What does that look like? Here is somebody, here is somebody who has no idea what's going on in his heart. If you take a verse out of context, you can make it mean anything you want. When I was studying these things and learning about uh, understanding the Scripture, how do I understand it so I can teach it to other people? They said there are three rules in biblical interpretation that you need to understand, right? And the first rule of biblical interpretation is context. You need to understand that verse in its context. And the second rule of biblical interpretation is context. Right, you see where this is going. It doesn't get any better. Context, context, context. And we as Reformed people also believe and apply what we call the analogy of faith. Something the Reformers talked about, something you'll read if you read in theology and church history in the Reformed tradition, the analogy of faith, which says this, all scriptures are harmoniously united with no essential contradictions. There's a unity and a harmony to the Scripture. It does not contradict itself. Therefore, every proposed interpretation of any passage must be compared with what other parts of the Bible teach. And so when we say context, we mean immediately what do the verses right around this say, but also by context we mean what does the whole book teach. This is, not, this is you know, in chapter 10, what does the rest of the book teach? You've got to remember what we've been talking about for months now. 
right? But not just what the rest of the book of Hebrews teach. What do the other biblical writers in the New Testament teach? What does Paul and Jesus in the Gospels teach? How do these things, and not just in the New Testament, but the Old Testament. In other words, the context goes from the, the, the minutia right around it into the, in the greater passage, the book, the New Testament, the whole Bible. And so that is, the, the, in other words, the, the analogy of faith says this, interpret Scripture with Scripture. And you can read a text like this, and if you take it out of context and say, that sounds like I've sinned since I've been saved, I'm lost, and I'm hopeless. Forget about it. If anyone goes on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there's there's nothing left but a fearful expectation of judgment. There are those who have taken it to mean that. But the New Testament is clear, my friends, that, that Christians continue to struggle with sin. The New Testament is very clear about this. Uh, Jesus and Paul and the rest of the writers are clear about this, that sanctification is a process. So whatever it's saying, it can't mean that, that if you, are, if you put your faith in Christ and then you sin again, even deliberately, in the next, I don't know how long, I became a Christian at 18, I just turned 59, so I've got 40 years, if I live a little while, right, in the next 40 years, if you sin again, there was one, one medieval guy, I think it was, he said, or a church father, uh, one of the guys who decided, well, you get one, bump, you get one wild card, like you, get, you can sin twice, and then that's it. That's not good news, my friends. Sanctification is a process that isn't finished till heaven. It says that when we see him, we will be like him. And until then, we're growing from glory to glory, bit by bit, step by step, three steps forward, two steps back, and we wrestle with our sin, and we fight the good fight, and we move towards sanctification, and more and more like Jesus, but, you know, there's still parts of me, and not all of me, and not all the time, and not every day, and not all day. The New Testament is clear that, that it goes on. Galatians 6, 1 and 2, it says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression... Right, and what did you, now if you take he, this passage in Hebrews to mean, you know, if anyone is caught in a transgression, tell him, that's it. Forget it, you're out. You got nothing left but fear. Right, is that what it says? No, it says, brothers, if you catch someone in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. But here, bear one another's burdens, clearly the context, that burden in particular is the burden of our struggle with sin and people who get caught in sin and need brothers and sisters who love them to help restore them, to pray for them, to preach the gospel to them, to come alongside them, to bear each other's burdens. And he says this, and so you fulfill the law of Christ, right? It is the law of Christ that when people sin, you don't write them off. You gently, graciously restore them. Right? That's the teaching of the whole of the New Testament and of the gospel and even the book of Hebrews. First John 1, 9 and 10 says, if we confess our sins, and he's writing this again to the church and to believers, and, and he writes and he says, if we confess our sins, what sins? Am I going to keep confessing all the sins that I did before I was a Christian and we just keep doing that? No, he's, he's writing to the church and saying 
that our ongoing struggle, if we confess our ongoing struggle, we confess the ways that we fall short, if we confess our sin, our daily sin, the way that my heart moves and the things that I, in word, thought, and deed, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive. Why is it just? Because Jesus bore the penalty of those sins for you. Justice was already satisfied. And so he is faithful and it is just for him to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse us. And this, this is a daily routine if you're a believer. It should be of daily confessing and repenting and believing and being cleansed and pressing on. Three steps forward, two back, but on and on and on. Fighting the good fight until the day we see him and we're like him and it's done. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of those passages that we go to when we talk about church discipline because it describes a man who's engaged uh, in very serious sexual sin. And, it, and it's a very strict, it's another passage, you read it, it's a bit like this. Uh, strong, put him out, hand him over to Satan that he may, you know, that the, the body may be destroyed but his soul may be saved. Like you, you've got to deal with this guy. You've got to do something in the life of the church. You can't let it go unaddressed. You can't have a brother caught in his sin. We must seek to restore him or we need, if that's not working, we need to take action, right? So 1 Corinthians 5, it's a very strong passage but when you get to 2 Corinthians, the man has repented. And in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 7, there were those who wanted to, to hold it hard and hold, keep holding his feet to the fire over his sin. And there's many of us who want to do that when the time comes to forgive and we really just aren't feeling it. And they weren't feeling it. And Paul writes and he says, so you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The, the difference between the man who hadn't repented and Paul's call for action and this call for mercy to a sinner to comfort him and to help him and to forgive him. So it's clear to me from the context, both of the book of Hebrews and the book of the New Testament and the understanding of the gospel and the whole doctrine of sanctification and everything else, that the author has in mind something more serious than the Christian's struggle with what John Owen called, in the title of one of his treatises, the power, deceit, and prevalency of the remainders of indwelling sin in believers. Right? The war continues. So what does it mean? The issue through the book of Hebrews has been this warning. Right? He's writing it to a Jewish community who have come to hear a knowledge of the truth in Christ, uh, who have made some profession, who have made some movement into even the church and in the community. They were at least on the fringes of this Christian community. But many of them, as they have, as they have uh, moved forward, have, have been tempted to fall back into Judaism, to fall back into the temple is still there, sacrifices are still being made. You know, the law of Moses is, you know, is, is saturated their minds and their lives for so long, and they are tempted to fall back into their old lives. I believe what, what this passage is addressing is what Jesus addressed in his parable of the soils, in the middle two soils. 
right? You got the one that clearly rejected it on the hard soil, and you got the one who clearly accepted it in the good soil. But in between those two soils, there were two more soils that were a little bit confusing. There's rocky soil and the soil where the briars grew up and choked it out. And in both of those soils, a start was made. It looked good for a minute. But then the one had no root, suffering and testing of the faith. It fell away. When it was tested, it fell away. Tested by suffering in the briary ground, the, 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 the thorns that grew up, that one was tested by pleasure. One is tested, one soil is tested by affliction. One is tested by pleasure, and the pleasures and the comforts of this life choked out. But both of them made a start, and both of them, when tested by prosperity or affliction, over time, our faith is tested, they fell away. They did not endure. Their faith was not genuine when it was finally tested. And so you've got this group that hearing about Messiah, hearing about Jesus, making some profession, but when push came to shove, they are going back to their old ways, back to their old Jewish lives. And there are, there are Jews even today, a certain large section of them that are still uh, waiting for Messiah. They have rejected Jesus, they've rejected the New Testament, they've said he's not Messiah, but many Jews still believe that there is a Messiah and they're waiting for him. They're still expecting Messiah to come. This is why in verse 26, whether it was Jews in those days or Jews in this days, they're saying in verse 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's, there's, there's not another one. God sent his only son. And whoever believes in him, there'll be no other. There's not going to be another one. There's no, no other Messiah is coming. The same one's coming back, but no other one is coming. Back in chapter 9, verses 26 to 8, it says that he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, once and for all, the tone of the passage is, it is finished. That's it. It's Jesus or nothing. Jesus is everything. It's all that was needed. It is finished. God accomplished all that, it, that is necessary. And so we see this even in the church. These two soils are two soils from the time Jesus taught them, experienced in the New Testament church and the Jewish communities to this very day. These two soils still exist, which is why some confusion. There are those people who make a profession of faith and for a while, you know, they're, they're in the church or whatever, and then they're not. And they were tested by affliction or by pleasure. And when tested, it didn't last. There was no lasting change. There are those who make profession, walk the aisle, pray the prayer, but there's no lasting change. They soon return to their lifestyle of sin and rebellion. There's initial response, but the truth is they're not following Jesus. They don't want to follow Jesus. 
it has become popular for people. I don't know if you've heard it. It's a trend. It's like so many trends right now. It's like a social contagion, as they say. Everything from gender things going on, but another social contagion that is touched on the fringes of the church is deconstructing your faith. Right? And so I don't know if you've heard this is going on. There are those who are deconstructing. Right? They're reconsidering the things that they've believed and been taught, and they're taking it apart. Right? They're deconstructing it. And there's, there are eight various levels. Some are just deconstructing certain doctrines, that they're, you know, but some are just plain deconstructing. Um, I know a couple of few people in that category who have basically deconstructed to the point of atheism, or at least agnosticism, spiritual nuns. Right? I'm a nun now. Right? I was Christian, I've deconstructed, and now I'm a non or a nun or however you... Right? They've deconstructed it. Right? This, is what the, this is exactly what the passage is warning against. Right? It is exactly the people he's talking to. Right? Those who have made profession of faith in Christ, those who showed some connection and something, but in the end have fallen away, have walked away. So in verses 28 and 9, it says that, you know, this rejection of, in, the, in the Old Testament, if you rejected the Old Testament law, it brought capital punishment. The punishment was death if you had these witnesses. But he says, how much worse? If you're not rejecting the law in the Old Testament, how much worse is the punishment? If it was capital punishment, physical punishment in the Old Testament, how much worse to reject Christ? And what he is describing in this text is the reality of hell. Not a lot of sermons on hell anymore, but that's what happens if you preach the whole council. You're going to have to preach hell. It says they trampled underfoot the Son of God. They profane the blood of the covenant. They have outraged the Spirit of grace. And what he is saying is what he said in, back in chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's the issue in this text. Nothing less than neglecting Christ, rejecting Christ, not following Christ, falling away from the grace that is ours in Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hebrews chapter 3, remember it, verses 12 to 14. Take care, my brothers. This is the issue in our text. This is what he is telling them. Take care, my brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. That ultimately when push comes to shove and the test comes, whether of affliction or prosperity, when, when that test comes, brothers, lest there be found in you when the testing comes, an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. You may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ. How do we know? If indeed we hold to our original confidence, firm to the end. This is what is at stake. Holding firm our confidence in Christ, our profession of Christ, our love for Christ, are trusting in Christ and in Christ alone, causing us to repent and to leave an old way of life, to follow Him with our whole heart. I would tell people many times from up here, I've said it many times, the true mark of a follower of Jesus 
is that he's following Jesus. How many people will say, oh, I am a follower of Jesus? <laughs> but they're not following Jesus. They're not doing what he said. They don't care what he said. They're not. I tell people, you know, the whole, well, how do I know if I'm going to persevere? I tell people, right, the true mark of perseverance of the saints, the true mark of perseverance is what? That they persevere in the faith. Stand firm in your confidence to the end. The, the sure mark of perseverance is persevering in the faith. How do I know I've come to share Christ? I hold firm my original profession of faith. It shows itself in the following of Jesus. And so to go on sinning deliberately here is to fall back into a lifestyle of sin. It's to fall away from following Jesus. It's to go back to your old way of life, of living for yourself and doing what you want to do, living for you. You're your own Lord, satisfying yourself, doing your will, not his will. To fall away from Christ, he says in verse 27, then when this happens... There is only him. He is our only hope. And if we in some way walk away from Jesus, he says there is a fearful expectation of judgment. And the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. And that's where we know it is his adversaries, not his children that are being addressed. And so all of this is to come to say, that for those folks who are outside of Christ, who reject Christ, who walk away from Christ, and those middle soils or, or the first one that just outright reject Him, the rea- there is that God's wrath is real. And the Scripture is so clear on this. See, when it comes to God and when it comes to spiritual realities, we live in a world and so in our culture, really, they, they want to hear the warm and fuzzy things. right? Tell me with a big smile... Only the things I want to hear. There are many who are convinced that love and wrath, that love and wrath cannot exist in the same God at the same time. And so if I got to jettison one, which one are you going to jettison? You jettison wrath for the fuzzy love. But they don't understand that God is love, (laughs) And God is holy, and he is righteous, and he is just, and these things are compatible. And he loves, because he is holy, righteous, and just, he loves righteousness and justice. And he is just, and he will be just. Even in our human judicial system, even in our human sense of justice, and I hear those who complain of American justice system, and rightly so, are a lot of reform that we need in the human American justice system. But in many ways, it's the best on the planet. It's only downhill from there. Justice is hard to come by. And most of us like the idea of justice. We want justice. Most of us, if we're thinking about, some judges are elected, some are appointed, but either way, generally speaking, we don't elect or appoint judges if they're a loving person. Is that what you're looking for? Just a loving person? That's the qualification for the job? Hopefully, mostly, if you're hiring a job, you're doing a judge, you're looking for someone who is impartial, wise, and just. Right? Generally speaking, that's what I want in a judge. It's almost a definition 
of a judge. <laughs> Wise, impartial, and just. Generally speaking, that's what we want. At least it used to be what we want. Right? Now there are judges and prosecutors who refuse to enforce the law. Right? We see it around our country in various places. They just absolutely refuse. I'm not going to enforce the law. I'm not going to prosecute the criminals. You know, I'm not going to execute justice. And what do we see? We see communities that are being destroyed. The businesses are closing and moving out. They, they, can't, I, they cannot function and run a business in, those, in that kind of an environment. And so businesses are shutting down and leaving. And so neighborhoods then are deprived of goods and services that those neighborhoods need, the people in the community need. And there are those criminals, those where justice should be applied, is not being applied. And so what do you have? People who are living in fear. Because the guilty roam free. They commit crime with impunity. People live in fear. They're... Many of them are trying to flee. They're trying to find some place to move someplace where justice still means something. Because without a just society, without justice, evil runs rampant. What am I saying? I'm saying justice is loving. They, they not only can exist in the same God, they must exist in the same God. Justice is loving. Love demands justice. Wickedness and evil grow when there's no justice, and justice is necessary for righteousness and holiness and good things to flourish. See, most of us still believe that evil and wickedness should be punished as long as it's not us. And here's where we get the rub, right? Because the Bible says, it's us. It's us. The wages of sin is rebellion. The wages of sin and rebellion is death. And the Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory. And we should, apart from Christ, verse 27, expect judgment. Justice demands it. Love demands it. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It is impossible for darkness to fellowship with light. Yeah, Paul asked in one place, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And darkness will not be invited into his presence. And if all have sinned and fallen short of his glory, and light has no fellowship with darkness, then all that we can expect is judgment apart from his grace. Judgment. 29 says punishment. How much worse will the punishment be? There's justice demands a punishment. And the wages of sin is death. How much worse in the Old Testament? The Bible calls it hell. There are people who still wonder and ask, why do you still believe in hell? Why would you stand up on a Sunday morning and preach hell to people? That's not popular, you know. If you want really big churches, you'll smile and quit saying that. Why haven't we deconstructed this outdated and scary belief? The short answer is that the Bible is so very clear about it. 
It's clear here. It's clear everywhere. In fact, no one, no one spoke more about hell than Jesus. I believe if my facts are correct, he spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. That hell is a real thing. The truth is, why haven't we deconstructed is that ultimately you can't be a follower of Jesus and not believe in hell. Remember, to follow Jesus is to believe what he taught and to do what he says. It's that simple. Believe what he taught and do what he says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? Right, and so... If Jesus taught on hell, and he taught on it more than anybody else in all of the Bible, even as, he, even as he gave himself in the gospel to us, he said, still, wrath is real. And he taught about it more than anyone else. And the reason I believe in hell is because my Savior, my Lord, believed in hell, and he taught it to me, and I can't follow him. I can't say I follow Jesus and reject the things that he teaches. Who's Lord then? Mark chapter 9, 43 and 44, Jesus said, Hell is an unquenchable fire where their worm dies not, not does not, dies not. Wait, where the worm, <laughs> no it is. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Matthew 25, in the sheep and the goats parable, he calls it the outer darkness. In Matthew 25, 30, he says that they will be cast, the worthless servant, the sheep and the goats, the goats will be cast into the outer darkness in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And later in verse 41, in the same parable, he calls it the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels, but that we will share. Jesus was very clear. In verse 30, He goes on to say, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He says, we know him. The God of the Bible tells us, vengeance is mine. What does that mean? It means justice is mine. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. There will be justice. It's loving and it's right and it's good because apart from it, There will be darkness and wickedness and evil into eternity. And the the justice of God says there will be an end to it. And there will be, it will be punished. Vengeance is mine. He will bring justice. And so verse 31 soberly makes clear for sinners who will not repent. He said it is fearful to fall into the hands of the living God. Who though he is loving is also just. We know him, he says. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We know him. My friend, as gently as I can tell you, uh, according to the scripture, that if your view of God does not include justice and wrath, you don't know him. He says, we know him who said this. If you don't believe he said it, and you don't believe in his justice and wrath, you really don't know him. We have said from, and many times up here, I said, you know, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And ever since then, we've been returning the favor. 
right? And so we have this projection, not of the God of the Bible, not who God says he is. We have decided God wouldn't be like that. <laughs> Love and justice can't abide in the same place. I'm going to jettison the justice, and I'm going to believe in a God of love, and all is fuzzy and warm. But that is a figment of our imagination. It is, it is, it is projecting our own desires and our own image. It's an idolatry. It's not the God of the Bible. It's an idol that we've made in our own head, a God without justice and without wrath. He does not exist. Do you know him? Let me just close with these two practical considerations then. We need a clear doctrine of hell. And we need a clear understanding of the gospel. Right? We need a clear doctrine of hell. Which is to say we need to know our Bibles. That we need to be clear about what it says. About what Jesus says. We need to understand uh, that the good news, right, the glory of the gospel is not rightly understood if you don't understand the bad news. At one time, it says that we who preach the gospel are like stars in the night sky against the backdrop of, of a vast blackness. There are the points of light and those points of light where the gospel is preached and people come, the context of it is, is this reality. Vengeance belongs to God. Justice will be done. The day is coming when all will stand before the throne to give an account before Him. And so, my friends, if wrath is real, if hell exists, the most loving thing that we can do is to tell people about Jesus. The same Jesus who taught us about hell is the one who died on the cross to save us from it. He said it's real and that's why I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Wrath is real and so I'm going to offer myself to bear the punishment of the just wrath of God against sin and sinners and rebels. I'm going to do what it takes to save us. And so we need a clear understanding of the gospel, how sinners and rebels may be forgiven and reconciled. Right? And this is the gospel. There's a, there's a therapeutic you know, gospel that says, oh, your life is a mess. God will clean it up. You know, oh, you know, you're having these problems and God will make it right. You know, oh, you're in poverty. God will make you rich. You know, you're having this, you know, and there's this therapeutic gospel. The gospel is this. The world is in rebellion. And God's wrath is real. And God has made a way for sinners and rebels to be forgiven and to be reconciled. The gospel tells us how he sent his only son to die in the place of sinners, to bear their punishment, our punishment, the punishment we deserve, the punishment, he says, the fearful expectation of this judgment and the fury of fire. He says, you outside of Christ can expect that, but in Christ, he would bear that weight. He bore the judgment. He bore the fury of the fire of the wrath of God against sin in his own body on the cross, in our place. If we will trust him, then the debt to justice is paid. The justice of God is satisfied. And me, a sinner who still struggles with sin, still wrestling my way toward glory, 
day by day, inch by inch sometimes, can rest secure in the grace and the mercy of God toward me because Jesus bore the penalty of hell that is described here for me. And so I am delivered. Romans chapter 3 says to us, God is both just and the justifier. It's an amazing statement. You got to think for a minute. I am both just and the justifier of those who have faith. I am both just, and this is where he is both justice and love in the same God at the same time. I am both just. I will bring justice. Vengeance is mine. I am just. But I'm also the justifier the one who loves and offers mercy and grace to those who have faith in Christ because in Christ my justice is satisfied. So I'm both just and the justifier of those who will trust the one who satisfied justice. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't say, oh, just forget about it. Believe in something and it'll all be fine. He says you need to believe in the one who bore the just penalty of your sin in your place. Then he is the justifier of the one. And then, my friends, when, when we believe in Jesus like this, as our Lord, our Savior, who did what he did for me, 1 John 4.18 says this, there is no fear in love. This passage is not spoken to those whose faith and trust is infirm in Christ to the end who are seeking to follow him, repenting of their sins, wanting to be like Jesus. If that's you struggling your way toward glory, he says there's no fear in the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit and won for us in Christ because perfect love, the perfect love of God for us in Christ casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever has... Fear has not been perfected in love. Fear has to do with punishment, and Jesus satisfied that for us. This is what Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no more condemnation. Fear has to do with punishment. When we know the love of God in Christ, there's no fear. And we are free to wrestle and to inch our way toward glory, trusting in Christ. For those in Christ, he is no longer fearful expectation of wrath, but the firm expectation of mercy. In 31, he ends it saying, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And fearful there, can, you can translate that as it's awful. That is, it's full of awe. It is an awesome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But here's the thing. This passage is talking about falling into his hands as a sinner who has walked away from Jesus. And there is the fearful expectation of wrath. But we could also find ourselves in the hands of God. Listen to 2 Samuel 24, 14. says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. And it is still awesome to find ourselves in the hands of God with the firm expectation of mercy And so the question is, will you believe and trust in Jesus and fall into his merciful hand by trusting in Christ alone? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. And we thank you that the same Lord who taught us the reality and the horrors of hell is the same Lord 
who bore the penalty of it in his own body on the cross, that we might be free. Would you write it deep on our souls, both the truth of hell, but the reality of grace that is ours in Christ, that we may live without fear, perfected by your love that is ours in Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen.